Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Far from seeing it as an invasion of privacy, you know, I actually got great enjoyment out of sharing it with people and the pleasure it seemed to give other people as well. So it's actually become very uplifting. As we head into the holiday season, I've got something special and a little different from our normal entrepreneurial journey. I'm speaking to an entrepreneur today whose vision built a garden. Now, not just any ordinary garden. Businessman, former stockbroker turned investment banker turned farmer Garrick Hawkins was a city boy whose childhood holidays in country Australia sparked a passion that stayed with him. In the mid-1980s, when he'd made a small pile, Garrick Hawkins bought a farm and over the next three decades transformed those sheep and cattle paddocks in Oberon, New South Wales, into one of the largest privately owned cool climate gardens, not just in the Southern Hemisphere, but in the world. Mayfield Gardens started, let's face it, as one man's private folly, really, intended as a family country retreat. But it blossomed, pun intended, into a beautiful garden of over 150 acres, now open to the public, complete with Monet-style water lily ponds, rhododendron glades, groves of birch and maple, arched stone bridges, a lake, a cascade carved into the hillside, arbours, alleys, and even an obelisk and a bluestone chapel. This isn't just a story about creating a grand garden. It's also a story of the relationships and the partnerships Garrick Hawkins forged with local tradespeople to build Mayfield and realise his dream. Mayfield Garden now sweeps across an entire valley and is a destination in itself. So actually, if you're on a road trip, think about a visit. From the 27th of December for just one month, the Hawkins family private garden inside Mayfield is open to visitors for its summer festival. So this is our final episode for the year. We hope you enjoyed this one. I'll be back with Build It Thou Come sometime in January. So thanks for your company this year and for your ongoing support of the podcast. Keep sharing it with your friends and family, colleagues and networks. Have a safe and happy Christmas and I'll see you again in 2021. Now, here's Garrick Hawkins. Garrick Hawkins, thank you so much for joining me on Build It Thou Come. Thank you for having me. Now, you've been really a successful entrepreneur, a successful businessman in two key areas of life. You've had a pretty amazing business financial career, and you've also created this beautiful, extensive, world-class garden that has now become a major public garden for all Australians and international visitors to enjoy. So let's talk the garden first, because it came about, as I understand, almost by accident in that you never really intended for your farm to turn into a garden and then to turn into one of the largest public cool climate gardens in the Southern Hemisphere, as I understand it. So take us back to how the garden began. Your summation is totally correct. I've always had a love of a country like I guess most Australians and I went to a school, which is a boarding school, and I had a, a very good friend there who had a place in the country and I spent virtually every school holidays on his farm. So I was always sort of keen that 
when the opportunity arose that I would acquire acquire a farm and then I think we bought Mayfield in about 1984 and it was not immediately that we thought that maybe we should build a garden. We always had aspirations to, if you like, have a pleasant house surrounded by a pleasant garden and a year or so after buying the farm, you know, that, that's indeed what we started to do. So we well, wait a minute, you're going too far ahead there because there's some great okay. parts of the story there. So you loved the country. Were you, those holidays as a schoolboy, were they in country New South Wales? They were. And in this area of Oberon? No, a very much different area. It was actually in, in the Riverina, not far from Albury. So in some ways very different, but some ways very similar. Also prime agricultural country also sheep and cattle country, and also a little bit undulating. So it was very different but very similar. So did you just fall in love with the country back then as a young person? Uh, Look, the short answer is yes, but I think that sort of an identity with the bush is very much part of the Australian psyche in any event. I think, you know, many Australians rightly or wrongly identify with the land. It's very much part of our cultural heritage. Yeah. And, you know, I always felt those pulls. You know, yeah. it, it was a wonderful place to spend time. Now, you bought this parcel of land outside Oberon, which is about three hours drive west of Sydney, 1984, you said. Why mm-hmm. there, as I understand it, Mayfield Farm, which it started out being, didn't it? It Was, was it already an existing farm with sheep on it? Yes, it was. Why there, the first question, it's an excellent question. Basically, I started like I guess a lot of people do and I just drew a, a line around Sydney, which was sort of, if you like, three hours driving, so where does that get us? So I knew the area you know, beyond the Blue Mountains a little bit and I, and I also, if you like, I enjoyed the cooler climates. So you know, I always you know, thought that would be a great area. So my then wife and I spent a little bit of time driving around and looking at various options and we chose Oberon and we were lucky that that particular farm became available at the time we were looking. Yeah, so as I understand it, Mayfield Farm is essentially an entire valley, isn't it? It is now. I mean, the, the history of Australian farms and Mayfield is no different to many is that, uh, you know, they've got bigger, they've got smaller, they've got bigger, they've got smaller Mm. multiple times over the years. So when we bought Mayfield, it was almost exactly 2,000 acres. You know, sort of uh, the people we bought it from and put various blocks together. But if you look at the history of the area, being at one stage I'm sure it was part of a bigger farm, then it became a series of far smaller properties. You know, it was impacted by the soldier settlement scheme after the Second World War where I think uh, they regarded 500 acres as a living lot, which it probably was at the time. So it, it had been subdivided, then been put together again, and then we were able to buy it for most of that time. So when bought it, it was 2,000 acres, and over the years we were able to sort of gradually buy adjoining country. So it's got to the stage where it is now at about 5,000 acres, which for that area is quite a large property. Yeah. So as you said, it's on the western side of the Great Dividing Range. So it gets mighty cold in winter in Oberon, frosts and often a dusting of snow. Did you intend it to be a working farm in the beginning? There was no real thought of a garden, was there? No, that's correct. It was certainly to be a farm. To be honest, I didn't understand a great deal about agriculture at the time. So I employed certain people to assist me in how it should probably be run, et cetera, et cetera. 
but it was always to be a working farm and still is. I mean, the garden is clearly a very large garden. It's in excess of 150 acres, but the property itself is 5,000 acres. Sheep and cattle mean less merino now, and the cattle operation is more a trading operation than a breeding operation. But we have quite a few cattle. It's a very productive country where we're quite blessed. And mm. when it rains, as it has in the last six months or so, it certainly has a very substantial carrying capacity. So it is regarded particularly as a prime lamb area, but also has a great deal of cattle. And also we can do some cropping there, which we're doing at the moment. So you're doing canola? We Very good. We are indeed, which is quite new for us. But touch wood, it seems to have been quite a success. So I'm sure we'll be doing more. So back in the mid-80s when you bought this farm and you're obviously building it up, buying the plots as parcels of land as they came up around you, how did you build it up, Garrick? Was it cash flow funded? Were you funding it back then? Were you borrowing from investment banks or banks? Did you have partners in those days? No, it was always 100% owned by the family and we obviously funded it in various ways. There was sometimes some excess cash flow. We certainly would often go to our good friends at the bank and uh, <laughs> if they were in a generous mood, which banks sometimes are, not always, they'd assist us and we'd look to pay them back, which made them happy. And sort of we built it fairly slowly but opportunistically. It's an area where property doesn't often become available. Mm. We were a little bit lucky in that when we were looking you know, over a five or so year period, property did become available and we were fortunate enough to be able to buy it. So the original idea, I guess, if we put this farm to one side, is what was it to build a beautiful house that you could have as a country getaway for the family and then have a garden as a showpiece to go with the house, just a normal size sort of garden? Yes, that's correct. I mean, I think the original aspiration was a garden of perhaps five acres or so, which we did build fairly early on. And then little bit by little bit, those aspirations increased. And as they did, so did the garden. So when really did the idea of a bigger garden come into your mind? I mean, after all, you're a finance guy. You're, you're based in the city. You know, you weren't a trained gardener. Were you an avid gardener at that stage? No, it's fair to say that my dad was very much a green thumb. My dad certainly had a love of gardens. I mean, the family home is Beauty Point in Mossman, which my dad bought actually just before the war. Then he went to the war and when he came back, he didn't build the family home. That was obviously done by a builder. But the garden he actually, which was quite a large garden by the standards of Sydney suburban gardens, particularly in Mossman, was I think over in excess of half an acre down to the water, he mm. basically built that himself. So it was quite steep. So he built all the stonework over a series of years. Wow. So he had a great love of gardens and gardening and construction. As a young guy, I mean, I couldn't imagine anything worse than going walking in a garden or, you know, <laughs> helping my own old man do the gardening, though we were, we were forced to do it. No, it just evolved slowly and early in my career. I used to visit London quite a bit and you know I, I took to on the weekends and things just sort of hiring a car and going wandering around and started off by looking at some of the grand houses and after seeing a few of those I sort of came more interested in sort of looking at the surrounding gardens so mm. I I started off looking at gardens seeing what I liked and, and bit by bit I thought well you know if they can do this why can't we do it in Australia and that was kind of you know, how it evolved was slowly just sort of seeing features I liked. I thought, well, you know, we could build that feature 
Mm. So it never sort of started saying, well, let's build a, a garden of 150 acres. It was sort of, here's something nice. Perhaps we can do something similar in Mayfield. So that's sort of, if you like, how it happened. Certainly there was never any aspiration to build a garden of that scale. Yeah. It just happened bit by bit. Organically, you could say. <laughs> Very much organically. Very much indeed. But in a sense, you had a vision in the beginning to at least have a magnificent garden around the house, and it was always for private use in those early days? Yes, absolutely. There was a, in, in the early days, there was never any thought that this is something which uh, would be open to the public. I mean, it was quite some years before that happened, and when it did happen, the garden was by that stage already of some scale. Yeah. So what were the gardens that inspired you or the people that inspired yeah. you? The earliest one was Stourhead, and Stourhead is a, a very well-known landscape garden in Wilshire, and it's owned, I think it's still owned, well, the garden's owned by the National Trust, but I think the property is, is still owned by the Hall family, who are UK private bankers. And, and so the guy who did it, Henry Colt Hall, he was a banker, and he basically drove a development of the garden himself. I mean, I understand he consulted from time to time with various people, and certainly some of the features, and particularly the landscape features, were constructed by the experts of the day, but the drive and the vision came from him, and that always inspired me because at the time you know, I was also a banker, and I thought, well, you know, if he can do it in the UK, perhaps we can do something similar in Australia. So that was very much the inspiration, or the primary inspiration, but I also very much liked Chatsworth Garden mm-hmm. in Derbyshire, and Chatsworth, a very famous garden, yes. a, a very grand garden, but with very, very strong architectural elements. And I always quite liked what they'd done. I, I liked the way they did it. And again, whilst it had more done taken to the care of professionals, there were members of the family who were very much drove the development of it. So I kind of identified with that uh, as well. Yes. It was also a similar sort of landscape. It was sort of quite undulating which people think is a challenge for gardening, but in actual fact, it's the easiest way to garden where you have steep slopes. Mm. And as I understand it, Lancelot Capability Brown did work at Chatsworth House and Chatsworth Garden from, what, 1750? Uh, I think he was he was around about that vintage. How much he did at Chatsworth, I'm not sure. The garden is probably more identified with Joseph Paxton, but it goes back even before Brown days. I mean, a very famous feature of Chatsworth is the Cascade, and mm. if you like, we've certainly plagiarised that at Mayfield, but the Cascade always fascinated me when I thought about it. The Cascade, I think, was built in the 17th century, and I used to sort of look at it and say, this is just extraordinary. This is, uh, was here 100 years before Cook sailed to Australia, and it just sort of put it into a great perspective for me. So Chatsworth is a wonderful garden with uh, very, very strong architectural elements. And it was the strength of the architectural elements, which sort of I most identified with both at Chatsworth and with Stourhead in particular. Yeah. And when you say cascade, can you describe for people listening who haven't yet been to Mayfield, what exactly a water cascade of 80 metres, which I think your one is, how it works, what it looks like? Give them a picture of it. Well, if one can encapsulate, if you will, it's almost like a a stone staircase lying on the ground. So it's a series of steps which flow down at the same slope as the hill, which allows water to flow down it. So if you like, the visual effect is the water gurgling and bubbling along as it goes down the hill. Mm. So there's quite a little bit of clever design involved to make sure that, if you will, 
the water is frothy and moves rather than just a sheet of water. And whilst you might think that the cascade is very even, in fact, both at Chatsworth and in Mayfield, there's a lot of trickery involved to sort of you know change the slopes, to change the speed of the water over various things, to have a series of steep steps, narrow steps, etc., to create that sort of sparkling movement, which I think is done at Mayfield very successfully and clearly at Chatsworth very successfully. So, Garrick, you really had this vision. You wanted to do something after being inspired by these fantastic English stately homes and the magnificent gardens, and you felt it could be done on your property in Australia. So who did you bring in to help you realise that vision and and build it? Sure. Well, the macro design things were were done by myself, but fairly early in the piece, right at the beginning, I, I had one guy who was the gardener and he was involved in looking after the garden, also some of the minor construction. And quite early early on, we employed on a part-time basis a local nurseryman by the name of Peter Darcy, who uh, you know I was introduced to. And Peter started off by doing you know some normal day-to-day uh, gardening things for us on a contract basis. And we quickly found out that we were you know, kindred spirits. And as my aspirations grew. Peter moved from, if you like, a contractor doing the odd thing for us to effectively a contractor engaged effectively full-time in Mayfield. And Peter has been with me. He's no longer there now. He's quasi-retired. But Peter's been involved, I think, in you know somewhere between approximately 25 years of the Mayfield journey and has been absolutely instrumental in the garden being what it is today. So I, he has my great respect and, and friendship and Mayfield would not be uh, what it is without his involvement. This is quite an extraordinary sort of partnership then. So you went to the local community, found Peter Darcy who had a nursery, and in a sense you had the vision, but then he helped you create it, you financed it, you created the vision in your head and on paper by the sounds of it, and you financed it, and he really helped you create and then enabled it and built it. Yes, very much so. I mean, as you mentioned, we've had from time to time, there have been Sydney people involved in very, very specialist things, but not very often. Some of the buildings have slate roofs, for example, so there aren't any local slate contractors around Oberon or Bathurst, so they came from Sydney, but Virtually every other trade is local from Oberon or the Bathurst area. Some of the the guys there have been with us in excess of 25 years and one indeed for 30 years. So we're very lucky that there's such a local school base around Oberon and Bathurst and we're doubly lucky in the people that sort of we're able to attract and who've been such an important part of uh, what Mayfield has become. Yeah. So you say you and Peter Darcy were kindred spirits. Just explain that a little bit more. How did that work in practice? Well, Peter has a deep love of gardening and horticulture. And Peter also has an extremely good eye, certainly in terms of the more micro details. It's very heavily, Peter. I mean, uh, no question, whatever we did, was deeply collaborative. We talk a lot and perhaps the audacious vision was more driven by me, but in terms then of actually making it happen, that was the drive and talent and uh, efforts of Peter. 
Mm. You know, aided by a, a significant, largely locally based team. So, in a sense, as it started to really grow and form into this is going to be a very special garden. What is the underpinning of your garden vision? Is it the formal style gardens blending through to more natural sweeping parkland style? You've got rolling gla- grassy slopes. You've got magnificent maple and birch tree groves. You've got water ponds and features, Monet-inspired water lily ponds. You've got arched bridges in bluestone. It's quite extraordinary and quite vast. So how did you see it? Did you want it all manicured and perfect or did it develop that you want some just to unfold and be a little bit, what shall I say, sort of a vista sweeping out before you? Look, it was far more of a lack. I mean, it certainly didn't start with the grand vision. It really was very much a piecemeal thing and sort of saying, well, for whatever reason, saying, well, gee whiz, that's not a bad idea. Why don't we do that now? I like that. Where might that fit in, etc.? So uh, in many ways, the garden developed very illogically and we've paid a little bit of a price for that. So, you know, from time to time, you know, we develop a piece of the garden, which was quite a long way from the house, notwithstanding the fact that there was a lot of bare paddock between the house and that new feature, just because, you know, we said, well, we, we like that and that's where it, it best suits. So it, it truly was quite higgledy-piggledy and it's only really in the last sort of 10 years or so that more logic and rhyme and reason has come to play as the whole thing has, you know, slowly but surely come together. Where mm. if it, at the moment we've reached the stage where it is, Uh, I hate to use the word finished because gardens are never finished, but certainly uh, more coherent whole, shall we say, as opposed to a series of individual parts. Yeah. All right. Well, so you started, I mean, basically there were paddocks there. So how much earthworks were done? It must have been extraordinary. The number of bulldozers for a start you must have had there for a while. There certainly have been a lot of earthworks. I mean, obviously, the lake is man-made, so that required uh, you know some scrapers for a period of some time to dig the hole. And as you dig a hole, you have a lot of earth. And if you have a lot of earth, you sort of say, where's the logical place to put it? Mm. So, yes, there have been a great deal of earthworks, but it's the building works that then follow and the development works then follow that you know take the time and take the effort. Likewise, when you move a lot of earth around, you tend to destroy a lot of the structure which is in the soil. Mm. Then you have to go about replacing that structure, and that's a, a time-consuming and, and, you know, in many ways frustrating exercise. Yeah. Have you ever been able to put a number or have you got a number in your head about how many craftspeople and workers did you have to build it from the earth movers, but also, you know, landscapers and gardeners, stonemasons to help you build those amazing walls and bluestone bridges? Well, I think uh, various people from time to time, certainly in excess of 50, and from time to time we've had uh, people on staff in excess of 30 but it's been a lot of fun and, you know, I must say even I lose sight of what was as opposed to what is. So mm. the shape changes and very quickly your mind uh, forgets what it was. For example, where the tennis court, the one edge of the tennis court 
involve 15 foot of fill. If you looked at it now, you know, the eye would say, well, that is natural ground level. Well, in fact, it wasn't. Mm. So you're quite right there. You know, the soil for there came when we took the down, we had to put it somewhere and that was a logical place to put it. The, the gallery, the original inspiration for that came from, it was actually when I think Peter and I were walking around the valley, which is just out of London and just sort of walking in a beautiful glade full of rhododendrons and sort of at the head of a garden, there was a, just a little basically a pavilion, which was a seat. And I thought, well, gee whiz, that's nice. That's really nice. I'd like to do that. And you know, we always wanted to sort of have a place where perhaps we could show a little bit the history of the garden mm-hmm. and so build a, a structure which was appropriate. So we sort of worked out, well, probably the best place to do that would be at, at the head of the LA where we make a nice eye catcher. And I always like classical architecture. For years and years, obviously, I've driven from Sydney to Auburn. I drive past Hartley, but not often gone in. And one day I went in there and I sort of happened to come across the Hartley Courthouse. And the Hartley Courthouse was classically inspired, but still very much Australian. And so the gallery at Oberon is very much plagiarised from the courthouse at Hartley. Oh, that's extraordinary. It was classical and it was also, you know, it was very much Australian because it was built in the convict era. And it was even better than that. It was very much local. So it seemed to be totally appropriate. So the front facade is very much similar, indeed, past the exact scale of the Hartley Courthouse. So Um, you've got this elegant alley of plane trees leading up to this beautiful Georgian building or pavilion, and that is the replica of the courthouse in little local town of Hartley. The front facade is very much so, yes. You mentioned going with Peter Darcy to a garden just out of London. As I understand, Mm. you did travel to parts of the world together looking at gardens, being inspired by what you saw. I mean, I'd invariably go to the UK at least four times a year, sometimes for business, sometimes with my family, and wander around and look at various things. So from time to time, Peter would travel with me and we'd just wander off and wander around and look at various gardens and see what we liked and didn't like. And, you know, every now and again, pick up something and say, well, gee whiz, you know, that's really, really, really nice. And, you know, this might suit Mayfield and this is where. And that was just one of those instances. There are a number of those instances, but that was just one. Yeah. So as well as the beautiful trees and flowers, rhododendrons, flowering tulips, crab apple, the magnificent birch groves and maples that you have, you also do have a lot of formal flourishes. There's the large obelisk stands in the middle of a 100-metre diameter pond with formal yeah. fountain jets spurting towards the obelisk. You've got the 80-metre-long cascade that we talked about cut into the hillside, topped by a, a Roman-looking structure. There's the, a grotto at the end of the lake. There's the elegant alley of plane trees. There's the croquet lawn. It's quite extraordinary in terms of the formal flourishes too, Garrick. What's the part, not so much the feature, but the part that you've most loved in the evolution of creating and building this garden? Oh, that's a great question. Various bits of it probably it would surprise some people. I mean, one of my favourite bits, to me, is spectacular, but a lot of people wouldn't regard it as spectacular. I, I'm very partial to the Valley of the Five Ponds, which at the head mm. of it is something which is called the, the Venus Vale. Now, that is a – we took the name but took the inspiration from a garden called Rusham, which is a not really that well-known 
on mature circuit, though it is open, it's very, very well known to, if you like, avid gardeners. It, it's one of the few remaining gardens which was done by William Kent, which is virtually as it was left in the 17th century. And it's a very simple feature, which I really like. So that's one of my favourite parts. I'm also fairly partial to the grotto, probably because I think it turned out rather well. But I also, I know what was involved in, in building it. When you see it now, you perhaps wouldn't identify with what's been involved, but I know how much the various earth levels have changed. I know how much structure went into it, and I know how much hard work went into it. It was an evolutionary thing, so the family were all very much part of it. I'm not sure when the kids were young how much direct interest uh, <laughs> that they had, but they were always very proud of it. And as they've got older, I mean, each of them has become very much more you know, emotionally committed to it. I mean, certain parts of the garden were directly relevant to family occasions. I mean, probably the, well, not probably, certainly the main one was uh, the chapel. I mean, the chapel was built for my daughter's wedding. Where it was built, there was always going to be a, a garden folly. It was always the idea of behind it to have a, a hidden room I can't remember where the inspiration came from, but something where you had to actually effectively walk into a building and then behind that building you would see this hidden garden which otherwise wasn't visible from any mm. other point. So that was always the inspiration. But then when my daughter Alex said, well, you know, she's going to get married, I thought, well, gee whiz, we, we better bring this thing forward and we better make it a little bit bigger than we planned so we can use it for Alex's wedding to Chris, and that's what happened. So whilst a building there was always part of what we planned to do, it was accelerated. It became a little bit bigger than was originally planned, and I think with about six months or eight months or ten months of very hard work, it was completed in time for her wedding, and since then it's been used for, I think, three or four family weddings, christings, and various other family events Extraordinary. Uh, as well. Uh, you build your own bluestone chapel. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also had your son's 21st birthday there? Yeah, my son's 21st birthday was there and the cascade was finished for that. And the cascade wasn't built for that, but we always had in mind that the date was bid. So it certainly put a, uh, a whole lot of timing pressure on the completion of the cascade. And the cascade, the water was turned on. Literally the, the the day of the party. Oh, so, um, how wonderful! I'm sure the young ones loved it. <laughs> it's true, and obviously with young kids who are you know in their late teens and early twenties, the night of his twenty first, we certainly there are a whole lot of kids running up and down that cascade <laughs> in various states of ill uh, repair. <laughs> I'm sure you thought, "Oh, my beautiful cascade, get out of there!" But it was probably very sturdy. Wouldn't be able to do too much damage to it, I suspect. <laughs> yes, Garrick, how did you manage water, and where? Did does it come from? Because obviously we, you know, we've just had this dreadful drought and we do have them. And certainly where Oberon is, is victim to drought as well. How have you managed water? Well, it's a constant issue. I mean, we have some blessings. I mean, Oberon is uh, by Australian standards quite a, a high rainfall area. The average rainfall is about 30, 32 inches. But over the years, both for farming and otherwise, we've invested considerably in in building appropriate dams, in sinking bores and the like. 
But, you know, we, we are susceptible to drought like everybody else. I mean, this last most recent drought, we had to very, very substantially cut back on the amount of water in the garden. Mm. You know, the last thing we wanted to have was a green garden when everything else was in, in drought. I think that would have been wrong. So we cut back and the garden actually did it very, very, very tough. You know, we do have a significant amount of water which we can use for the garden and do. But uh, it's a constant problem. You can have a bore and the bore will work very successfully for some time and then all of a sudden uh, the amount of water available is limited. You know, we have substantial dams which we're able to access again, but when it's dry, it's dry everywhere. So we do have those issues. The cascade itself doesn't use water, I mean, because it's basically a recirculating mm. system. I mean, So there is a, a hidden tank somewhere where if you like the water goes up, the cascade goes down the cascade and then gets recirculated. So yeah. per se, whilst we lose a bit in evaporation and various other things, it doesn't actually use a great deal of water. Garrick, when did you actually start to think that this could be more than a private passion, that it should be a visited public garden? I lose track of when it first happened, but it may have been 15 years ago. I was approached by Rotary, I think it was, and saying, would we open the garden for charity for their benefit? I've always been a bit of a soft touch. So I said, yeah, of course. And uh, we did. And apparently, and uh, I was quite surprised at uh, the number of people who came and a little bit of a change in mindset for me. And we eventually decided, well, it probably does make sense to do this. We were encouraged to open it. And to be frank, I didn't know how I'd react. So, uh, you know, sort of Fairly early on, I would take just to you know, pulling my hat over my eyes and sort of wandering around <laughs> and just sort of, you know, listening to what people would say. And, you know, I found that sort of rather than being resentful of an invasion of privacy, I actually became quite inspired by the various comments I heard. Oh, uh, that's I was wonderful. overwhelmed by how respectful people were. I mean, we would have a thousand people or so through the garden and there wouldn't be one piece of paper left. Mm. Every, you know, the vast majority of people are incredibly respectful of everything. And so I found that far from seeing it as an invasion of privacy, you know, I, I actually got great enjoyment out of sharing it with people and the pleasure it seemed to give other people as well. So it's actually become very uplifting and gives me pleasure, but others also enjoy it. And some of the the letters and emails we get from people, uh, you know, almost bring a tear to your eye. People seem to be so grateful that they can be there and so moved by the experience. And that, of course, is incredibly satisfying, not only for me, but all the other people involved in the garden. Like everything in life, you, you know, people give you the greatest pleasures. They tend to give you the greatest disappointments as well. But the fact that the garden gives so much pleasure to quite a, a range of people is very satisfying for all of us who have been involved in the development and, and the maintenance of the garden. Yeah. Garrick, what is the main ingredient you need to persevere with creating and building a garden like Mayfield? Masochism. <laughs> well, I was going to add, would it be patience and deep pockets? But uh, you've probably hit it in one, masochism. <laughs> Look, it's not rational at all. I mean, it's a labour of love. I mean, there is a commercial endeavour there. But it would be fair to say that if I was asked for advice and, you know, how one should go about making money, it's unlikely I would suggest that you go and build a 150-acre garden. <laughs> that wouldn't be my suggestion. So it's it's about passion. It's about sharing things. It's about all sorts of things. And it's, it's also a, a little bit the proud Australian in there. 
it, it truly is. You think, well, gee whiz, I mean, you've seen all these wonderful things. I mean, Australia has accomplished a great deal. We've got our problems as well, of course, but who doesn't? And so a little bit of it was, well, you know, why can't Australia have a great garden? So a whole multitude of things have come into play, but that's certainly one of them. What do you think you learned about yourself as a leader, but but also as an entrepreneur through this process? Uh, well, it's really been well, more than a process. It's been part of your life journey, hasn't it? Well, a life journey is probably a, a good way to put it. My uh, wife has a a rather Buddhist bent and some Buddhist values and sort of I've learned just to enjoy the process. I still get very frustrated that uh, some of the problems and sometimes that things don't happen at the speed that uh, I would have thought they shouldn't and all the normal sort of stuff. And, you know, we take two steps forward, we take one step back. But I've also very much enjoyed the journey. And as always, as I mentioned before, I mean, people are, are always the greatest pleasure. I mean, so the interaction with people particularly the people who have worked for us. I mean, so many great people who have contributed so much. How would you describe your relationship with Peter Darcy over that period? Was that very much part of it, this kind of partnership you seem to have in creating this masterpiece? Yes, very much. Peter and I are in many ways different, but many ways similar. And uh, if you like, whilst we'd occasionally have crosswords, it wasn't often and there was never any doubt about our mutual joint aspiration, which was to do whatever was the best thing uh, for the garden. You know, we sometimes have differences about what should happen and how, but not often. And if like, the vision became joint, I think that it's probably fair to say that I opened Peter's eyes a little bit. And it's also very true to say that he taught and inspired me in many ways as well. So it's been a, a great partnership. It's been an incredibly important part of both our lives. Garrick, have you ever dared to estimate how much it has cost you? It was certainly obviously a labour of love for a good portion of even when the garden became a more public garden. (laughs) Could you ever put a price on what it's cost you? It's fair to say that I've always preferred not to look. I mean, um, (laughs) I'm sure if I speak to the accountant, they could tell me tell me to the penny, but I've never really looked, yeah. looked at that way. So probably more than uh, was sensible is probably the best answer. <laughs> so in a way, is that also to be sort of more serious? Is it part of your kind of tribute to philanthropy? Uh, that's a very good question. This took enormous investment from the get-go. So in a way, it's philanthropic, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, the garden is now effectively owned by something called the Mayfield Foundation, which is a foundation that the family set up. You know, the garden, we never envisaged that it would grow to the state where it has, not but it has grown to a substantial state. And I guess as, you know, I've got older, I've been become more and more conscious of one, you know, it's going to require significant investment I mean to maintain the garden, to get the building of it, but to maintain it. Two, I mean, if you like, and I was always highly conscious of the fact that, one, I wanted to share the, the good things about it with others, but I was also cognizant of the fact I didn't want to leave a burden on my family mm. going forward because whilst you know, I'm in a position of influence, I might choose to, to spend more money to make sense on the maintenance of a garden. It's not a burden I'd necessarily want to give to my family. And likewise, I have no way I wanted to see that somehow this thing would fall into disrepair. So it just made sense to 
one put it in a charitable trust situation mm. which you know we continue to endow with funds but also to endeavor to make it a little bit more economic based so that whilst uh, never generate massive wealth but perhaps it could get to the stage where it became self-sustaining i mean mm. under the, the charitable trust the way it's set up is that if there are any profits they go to various charitable causes in, in particular Support of horticulture. I mean, we already do support various things, but it's designed that over time it will be more support. People wanting to have a career in horticulture, but, but and also particularly support country kids in terms of their education, not necessarily horticultural education, but education in general. I mean, the family already support a number of scholarships for young kids, not necessarily country kids, but nine times out of ten they are country kids. So, if you like, education is something that we think a lot about. And also, if you like, supportive people in the country, we think a lot about. And also, if you like, trying to encourage people to have a career in horticulture, which used to be a big deal in Australia and is much lesser so now, is also something we think about and something that we endeavour to support. And Mayfield Foundation is a key part of that. Mm. Garrick, we've only got a few minutes left and I I did want to talk to you about, of course, it's one thing to have the vision and the passion to create Mayfield Garden, but you need to finance it in order to build it and which you've done, I guess, thanks to your other successful career in business. Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur? I understand you began your financial career at Bain & Co., the old Sydney stockbroking stalwart. That's correct. It didn't quite begin there, but if you like, in terms of becoming of a little more substance, then that certainly was the the beginning. I mean, I started a... uh, I was employed by Jim Bain to um, set up a particular part of the firm, which was the structured finance firm, which is something... I knew a little bit about, not a lot, but a little bit about, but that became over time a highly significant part of the firm, indeed uh, the main profit driver of the firm. So that's where, if you like, my commercial career started and went on from there. I mean, I'm I'm no longer involved in investment banking, but it still defines a lot of who I am. Certainly Mm. my mind thinks in those ways, but the main family businesses these days are a property investment business. We're not so much trading, but investing in various forms of asset property in Australia and also in England. So do you develop property in England? Yes, we do. You're not so much to trade, but if you will, with an aspiration of building a portfolio. So you know, my son's also very much involved in that business. I'm an old guy now, so I don't perhaps spend as much time in it as some might like, but I still have something to offer, they tell me from time to time, so I certainly have an involvement. Garrett, can I ask you, there are obviously times, and we uh, I go into it in this podcast with my other guests, when things don't work out, either in business or in gardens. Now, there, you know, there has to be ups and downs as well. And your agriculture business did go into, you called in administrators in March last year. You're the majority shareholder, as I understand it. And and Ceres Agriculture managed many fine beef and sheep farms. That must have been painful for you. Was that drought induced? And what's the status of that administration now? Yeah, it was extraordinarily painful. Clearly, Ceres was not a success and I'm more used to being associated with success than I uh, am with failure. When things go well, when things go wrong, uh, it's usually the same reason. Drought was a big part of it and drought was the final straw, but at the end of the day, 
business wasn't run as effectively as it should have been. It's just, it's just mm. that simple. And I don't think anyone suggests agriculture is an easy business. It's a very hard business. It always gets back to shortcomings in um, business practices, management and, and, and all the like. And so you mean basic things like spending more than you had or borrowing more than you should have, the company should well, have? Not, not, I, uh, they're all subsets, but at the end of the day, mistakes were made and I take, must take ultimate responsibility for it and I always do. We made some fundamental errors. Most of those errors were made when I was living uh, overseas, which, you know, Modestly, I like to think it may not have happened if I'd, I'd been there, but nonetheless, it always comes down to me. That business stuff doesn't exist as it used to, though we still have agricultural interests and I'm still a great bull on agriculture. It's a tough business. It's not an impossible business. It's not an impossible business at all. So it's disappointing. I mean, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the most pleasurable things in life and also the greatest, greatest enjoyment in life and the greatest disappointments in life always involve around people. Some of those disappointments involved around Ceres were people-related. Some, some of the great joys in Ceres were also people-related. Mistakes were made. Mm. Garrick, what's the biggest thing you've learned in your entrepreneurial journey, your, your business journey and garden journey? Oh, that's interesting. Again, it's always people. I think it is probably to back your own judgment that your first, your first judgment is usually correct to try and surround yourself by people who are better and smarter than you, to always be on duty, to always be watchful and don't assume too much, but, you know, to support people. I mean, in, in my career, I always say, I mean, I, I feel I've been let down, you know, two or three times and it's cost me dearly. And that's the hard bits, but, you know, I've been involved with so many people who have contributed so much to what I've achieved. Mm. Mayfield's just one example, but also commercially, so it's about trying to surround yourself with the best people, trying to be an effective leader, leading from the front, backing your judgment and all the old hackneyed stuff. I mean, honesty is the best policy. It truly is. Work hard, tell the truth. What's the toughest thing you faced in your career? Again, always people. You know, being let down by people. I mean, I've, I've had some as I say, many great experiences, but, you know, Acts of outright betrayal, that happens. It happens. Uh, in business, you mean? You don't have to read Shakespeare, but of course, it happens in all parts of life. As I say, positive experience with people, the most fulfilling, and uh, where you're let down by people is always the greatest pain. So, yeah, I mean, just as in life, as in business. I'm sure most business people would probably say exactly the same thing. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Oh, I hadn't, hadn't thought of that. Uh, probably what I'm obsessed about at the moment is making sure that various things I'm involved with, you know, the garden, various things of business, etc., are not overly dependent on my personal input. I'm cognizant of the fact that uh, I won't live forever. You know, I've got a wonderful family, making sure, like any parent, that I adequately provide for them without sort of creating, you know, unnecessary burdens but also making sure that what's there has longevity, which without making life too easy for anybody will sustain. And that likewise, we continue to make contributions to the broader community, which you know, in various ways we, we have for some while and hopefully will continue to do. Garrick, what would you say to young people who want to pursue a dream or back themselves or their idea to start something from scratch? Go for it. 
you'd be amazed, or perhaps you wouldn't, the number of times people have come to me, you know, saying that I want to go out and business myself or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I've always said the same thing. Just do it and you'll find, invariably you'll find within a year or so, you'll wonder why in the hell it took you so long. So go for it. Go for it. Never die wondering. (laughs) Oh, great. Gary Corkins, the founder of Mayfield Garden and businessman extraordinaire, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you very much, Helen. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter, at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.